The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The Fed and this critical week for your money with stocks sitting right at a key level. We'll debate what lies ahead with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Kevin O'Leary. Mr. Wonderful is back. It's good to see him. Joe Terranova here, Liz Young as well on set. Let's check the markets. Well, we've had a nice turnaround for stocks, believe it or not. I know it doesn't look at so much here. We're all in the red, but Dow was down 260, so we have come back. 10-year note yield, 348. NASDAQ still a place to watch, 11,405, still a third of a percent decliner today. It's been the real uh, decliner of late in, in the face of rising rates and sort of concerns about where they are going. Joe Turnova, begin with you. We are below 3,900 on the S&P 500. Some say that wasn't that big of a deal, like Mark Newton of Fundstrat in overtime the other day said, not that big of a deal. Krinsky, though, at BTIG says that opens the door, losing it to the June lows. You came into the day short, the December 3860 futures on the S&P, and then you covered them shortly before the show. I'm trading. Take me through that. Yeah, I mean, I'm trading, and I think that's all you could do in this environment right now. A remarkable statistic over the weekend. I think Bloomberg.com was the source for it, but it highlighted just how extreme the all-or-nothing market really is right now. 80% of the S&P 500 in 2022 has moved on a single day in the same direction over 40% of the time. You haven't seen that highest statistic since 1997, and only twice in the last 25 years has it been above 30%. So it just seems as though there's just this macro trade, and it's a macro trade where it's okay, we're buying them, or okay, we're selling them. That's a very difficult place for investors to be right now, long-term investors. In the interim, Scott, I think what you could do with that is you could trade around the edges. And yes, I said last week, the market is in a perilous position. I think universally everyone knows the lows from June are in jeopardy. But what's the meaning of this particular trade to, to put on a short of the December 3860 futures only no, to I cover so, it I today? So, no, no, no. I, I sold on Thursday December S&P futures at 39.45. 39. OK, I covered those at 38.60. Oh, OK. We're talking morning. about the OK. So We're talking about the that prior trade. And it's a derivative trade. That's My what bad. it is. I sold the 39. Uh, I sold the futures at 39.45 because I was anticipating what ultimately did happen. We took out the low, the Labor Day low. At 38.86, here we are right now trading below it. That's a significant technical level. And it does. Unfortunately, it opens the technical door towards the June lows. Okay. Uh, my bad. I didn't mean to confuse you, uh, and I certainly didn't mean to confuse anybody else. Liz Young, so we mentioned Krinsky saying the door's now open to 36.40. That's the June low, okay? MKM today says there, we must now be open for a test of the June low. Are we? Absolutely. We going back there? Absolutely. I mean, well, I shouldn't say absolutely we'll go back there, but we should consider it a strong possibility. Strong possibility. I okay. look at it more on a valuation basis. So if you look at the 15-year average P.E. on the S&P, it's 15.8 times. OK, if we get down to that level 
at this level of earnings, we would blow through the low. It is very possible that we do that. I don't think that that is the worst case scenario. I think in, at this point, that might actually be the best case scenario. And, and look, I'm not a technician, nor do I play one on TV, but we haven't yet hit all of the levels that people talk about for bottoming. So I think actually the best case scenario right now is that we get to those prior lows, maybe do a big flush, possibly blow through them, get it over with quickly, and then set ourselves up for some more durable upside as the Fed gets to peak rates. Okay. Mr. Wonderful, are you um, as negative on the market as some of these calls are going back to the lows? And I have more in front of me that have more negative predictions, whether it's on earnings or margins or where stocks are going. What about you? Well, I think we're at the point this week of maximum uncertainty because you don't know what the Fed's terminal rate's going to be. Is it 75? Is it another 100 basis points? And then what's after that? Those that were thinking 4%, they'd stop there. Well, we know that's not going to be the case. Is it 5%? Is it past that? We're still at 8.2% inflation. So, and now also that narrative that's coming to the market with the two-year at 4% or close to it, there's alternatives for equities. Mm -hmm. You can park cash into treasuries. We've done that recently. Um, you're still not beating inflation, but you're not losing anything while you're parking that capital. And that's the first time in years where we've actually gone and bought govies. Uh, and so there's competition for this, this capital. Earnings all over the map. I mean, you, you didn't know that uh, you know FedEx was going to blow its brains out on executional issues in addition to a down market and concerns about recession. That's half self-inflicted. And then Adobe's 100% damage from really bad deal-making and, and lack of executional skills or analytical skills or whatever it is. But they were cornerstones in dragging this market down. They're big names. They're heavily indexed. Uh, and, and there's management at fault there. So it's very difficult to try and figure out on the earnings basis whether you can do a, a macro call on the back end of this year because the consumer remark. All right, we, we're having some obvious uh, technology issues with, with Kevin. Todd, we'll we'll, we'll get back to him in a second. That's okay. Shan, let me, let me come to you. Uh, Kevin raises an interesting point about high, high rate, how high rates are going to go uh, and how sticky they're going to be once they get there. Hotsius at Goldman Sachs today is pointing to a higher peak, uh, like many others uh, as well. So what do you think this week holds for stocks? Are you as negative on the market as these other folks appear to be? Well, I think Joe made a great point, as did Liz, in thinking about what was driving the rally in June, uh, from June through the middle of August, and this expectation for a soft landing and for a pivot. And I think what really took the wind out of the sails of the market over the last few weeks is that um, this soft landing narrative um, has really come off. Uh, it had gone, it had grown from a whisper to a murmur, um, and really to a call. I think by the time early August rolled around. And so if we look at what we expect over the course of the next four to six weeks, I actually think that's where everybody is, is concerned about. Um, I do think that we're looking at a Fed that needs to remain incredibly hawkish in their statement this week. I don't think they're going to deviate from that. And in fact, I think every word of the statement is going to be carefully crafted to ensure that we do not have a return to the June to August time period. The Fed knew that their, 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 um, the evaluation of what they were expected to do was much too dovish during that period. And so I think the Fed meeting is going to be important in terms of continuing to reiterate the fact that Fed funds rate is likely going to be higher than four and a half percent, at least by, you know, January or February of next year. Um, but I don't want I want to make sure we don't miss the point here. 
um, and that there are going to be data points that start to turn more positive, more optimistic ahead of CPI. Um, and it's just depending on how data dependent that the Fed will be, whether we get four and a half or five and a half by February of next year. So, Joe, I mean, it all comes down to what this all means to our earnings and margins. And David Costin at Goldman Sachs is talking about shrinking margins and how they pose a risk to the S&P 500 return on equity. Um, equities appear tilted to the downside. Margins, the primary downside risk. There's this belief that earnings, that the economy is still good enough, that earnings don't have to come down as much as some people think, and that apparently there's enough pricing power to deal with inflation that margins don't have to, to, to come in as much as people think. Is that a realistic view of the world? I think it's a... Something's got to give at some point, right? I, th I think it's a view that was maintained for the better course of the weeks that followed the July reporting season. I think, unfortunately, recently we've heard from too many corporations that, that that, in fact, might not be the reality. So I do think a reset of expectations in terms of profitability is warranted. I do think there will be margin pressure. And ahead of that, you're in this position again where the Federal Reserve, and not so much, listen, I, I think 75 basis point, we, we could fully expect that's what you're going to get. I, I don't think you're going to get 100 basis points. It almost matters more what you get afterwards, So yeah, right? Yeah, and like 75, I think you know, the market is expecting 75. But it wasn't that long ago before, when it was 75, 25, 25. Right. Now it's almost 75, 50, 50. Correct. And, and I think that the, the concern that I have, will the chairman upset the market or comfort the market in this press conference? I have no clue. And that's where... To Kevin's point, that's where the maximum uncertainty comes from. Uh, I, I almost wish there wasn't a press conference. Well, what, what, comforts, the, what comforts the market? I, I don't know what at this point. I think credibility comforts the market. I think he has to continue to restore and maintain credibility. I think that's the single most important dynamic right now that the market wants. I feel they a conflict, want, though, in what you're saying. He's like, he has to restore his credibility, so he's got maintain, to be, yeah. he's got to maintain it. Mm -hmm. So he's got to talk tough. But then if he does that, how does he soothe the market at the same time? It doesn't make sense to me how he does that. I, I so think, an impossible task. I, th I think ultimately uh, what, what he has to do is, is walk a fine line where he is hawkish. And then as he looks into the future, tells us that it would be an unreasonable expectation for investors to think that this extremely unprecedented hawkish position can be maintained through the course of time that that signals that it's going to stop at some point. Right. I, that's I a fine, listen, that's a fine line to walk. I think there's I, one thing, though, that could comfort the market in this meeting. Don't forget that we're going to get a dot plot. We're going to get a new summary of economic projections. The market right now is pricing in 4.2 percent for a Fed funds rate by the end of the year. If that dot plot and SEP comes out lower than 4.2 percent, we have to adjust to get back to a point that would sort of seem more dovish. So let's say the dot plot comes out and says 4% Fed funds rate by the end of the year. The market likely 4%? views that. Let's say it does. Hypothetically, let's say it does. It was at 3.4. I know, but that sounds time. like an unreasonable hypothetical, given sort of well, how, we would, balance it out, how we would get to that point, right? And I go back to the hotsiest note. He says, we expect the median dot to show the funds rate four to four and a quarter at the end of 22 with an additional hike to a peak of four and a quarter to four and a half in 23. You get the rate cut, but you get it in 24. You don't get it in 23, as the market was delusional in thinking a week or so ago that you were going to get a cut in yeah. 23. I still think there's a pretty good chance of a cut in 23. I don't think the dot plot is going to come out quite as aggressive as people expect. And remember that it's the median. It's not the top or the bottom. I think that it's 
it's reasonable to expect a 4% dot plot by the end of this year, in which case the market might see that as, okay, it's not quite as aggressive and we can relax a little bit. I hear you. I'm, I'm, I mean, he's talking about the median too. So, right, I think people have, in the last week or so to two weeks, sort of reset their expectations higher yeah. after the CPI came out. Yeah. It might have sounded okay if the CPI was playing the right game. Unfortunately, the CPI is doing its own thing, and we're all left catching up to it. Uh, Kevin O'Leary, so your microphone cut out before you got to finish your, your, your sentence uh, earlier. But this idea uh, that everybody needs to reset their expectations for the Fed, that to Joe's point, what, what could the Fed chair possibly say this week that is going to be viewed as soothing, in his word, for an investor like you? I think I'm not I don't have that expectation anymore about Powell. He's been hawkish, more hawkish, more than hawkish as we've gone through the last 90 days. Uh, his problem, and it's very obvious, 8.2% inflation. Maybe you could argue that it's peaked, but it shows no sign of slowing down. And so he can't take his foot off the hawkish gas pedal. Mm -hmm. It's going to be brutal, I think. I, 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 the only thing you can do now as an equity investor is to look for opportunities that he's giving you by beating up every sector. All 11 sectors of the S&P are getting powelled. Every single one. There's nowhere to hide anywhere. And so if you have your names and when he comes out and says, I'm going to do 100 basis points and then may even signal another 100 basis points, it'll be a slaughter fest. But maybe a good entry point, because at some at some point in the next six months, he will take his foot off the pedal because we got to get inflation CPI data to roll over. Maybe give us a 7.9 or 7.5 or something. And all of a sudden it's over. And equity markets will respond in the forward look they always have. But right now, maximum risk, maximum uncertainty, maximum chaos. So, um, Shannon, for technology that makes me think of immediately as Kevin talks about the risk in stocks and chaos, that's his word, not, not mine. Um, but tech has gotten hammered lately, right? The XLK last week was down 7.5%, and components of it were down a little bit more than that, whether it's software at 10, uh, innovation, ARC funds, uh, some of the higher valuation and higher growth names, obviously. That down 8.5%, but Megacap was not immune to that selling in any way, shape, or form. Are, are those set up for a world of, a world of hurt? And, and Jim Cramer, I remember telling me in overtime on Friday that you really don't want to be in tech right now, that it's susceptible. Non-tech often safe. He tweeted, tech not so. Well, I, they're definitely susceptible, and we've seen that in the market. Uh, you're looking at a scenario where everything that's sitting at a valuation that's higher than the S&P 500 is certainly seen as expensive. It doesn't matter. I think one of the things that investors did for perhaps the first part of the year was look at technology companies, particularly mega cap tech, and compare their multiple to their historical multiple. And so that still was an acknowledgement that, oh, but they've come down as well. I think we're entering this new phase, and I think Joe touched on it, and I, and I want to just double-click on it. If we think about margin, um, and you think about companies that are going to be able to drive uh, stronger margins next year, you start to have to see some deviations, just less at the sector and industry level, and more at the individual stock level. And so... I think what's going to happen is that I do think that there is going to be less correlation across sectors as we move into 2023. Mm -hmm. I think there are going to be opportunities. And so from a tech perspective, I continue to look at this as an opportunity to potentially drive both top and bottom line 
But in this next six-week period, I don't disagree. They're going to feel this pressure just because they are trading at a multiple that's much higher than the market is still. Greg Branch, he's our headliner today, our halftime headliner, Veritas Financial. He's the founder and the managing partner. Welcome back. It's good to see you again. Good to be here, Scott. You have a somewhat of a smile on your face. That can't be because you've turned from Mr. Negative to Mr. Positive on the market, is it? No, 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 no. And so uh, let me dimension this. You know, am I incrementally more positive than I was in January? Of course, Scott. You know, in January, the S&P was at 4,700, and I was uh, out on the limb saying that the true value was 3,800. But much of what I saw for this year uh, is and has come to pass. And so, you know, my discrepancy with consensus is not as great as it was uh, back in January. Now, don't get me wrong. I still have very limited exposure to equities right now because I believe that we're facing a triple headwind. We're facing the headwind of the Fed continuing to raise rates. And as the uh, as our colleagues have said, yes, they're targeting 4% for this year, but some are even looking at a terminal rate as high as 5%. Mm-hmm. And so there's still no real consensus on how far we're going to go there. Two, estimates still need to come down. There's no way the S&P is putting up a 60 in the back quarter of this year. That's probably 10% too high, as well as estimates for 2023, looking at 246, probably, again, 10 to 15% too high. And so as we're going down that downward revision cycle, that presents a headwind as well. I believe the consumer will be a headwind in this back quarter as well. So what are you, are you, are you, what are you doing? Are you sitting in cash? Are you buying treasuries, which now uh, offer... Uh, a, a, a way to, to hide out finally, uh, or, or more so, a way to take advantage of the market in a way that you can't in stocks. Right. I think Kevin hit it on the head. You got to go where the opportunities present themselves. And so that might be creeping back into fixed income to some degree. Earlier in the year, as you know, Scott, we uh, were buying puts, buying intermediate and long-term puts, and that strategy worked out well for us. Now that there's not as great a discrepancy, between where, where I see uh, at least the, the end of this year uh, versus uh, where the market is, uh, you know, that we've wound that down t- uh, to a great extent. Uh, but I'm still looking for 2023 estimates to come down pretty significantly. So I'm just not a buyer here ahead of probably another two basis points of rate increases, downward pressure uh, on estimates that need to come in. Um, just can't advocate that right now. Hey, Greg, it's Joe. Good to see you this afternoon. How, how much hey, does p- positioning and sentiment play into where you think markets might go? Obviously, cash levels are at historically high levels. And it seems as though yourself, myself, universally, everyone seems to know the challenges and the headwinds that the market has. Um, I see right now extreme pessimism being rebuilt once again. And I think that's being reflected in positioning. Do you think that ultimately matters? And can that be a tailwind for the market? I think it matters, but I think our job is to separate sentiment from data and to go where the data leads us. And so we had a great deal of sentiment uh, two months ago when we were all talking about a Fed pivot and where the projection for, for this meeting was that they wouldn't raise rates at all. Uh, and so our job in that, in that time, uh, many of us did, was to say that this is a fake rally because it's built on the premise that Powell has given the green light to put on risk that the Fed is pivoting and that we've reached peak inflation. And all of that has, in fact, turned out to be wrong. And so sentiment has a tendency to be what we want and not what we see. And I think that that's our job is to separate as investors, be it professional or or on, uh, sitting home on your couch, separate what you want 
from what you see. What if Powell is not going to be as hawkish as some think, that he recognizes the danger of a, a gunlock word that he used with me last week of oversteering, that Powell knows as well as anybody that the cuts uh, or the hikes that they've done already need time. They need time to work their way through the system. He also knows that a good part of inflation is, in fact, coming down. So maybe he's not going to be as hawkish as some think because of all of those reasons I just suggested. Uh, I'll even add one more to your case, Scott. We're, they have massively accelerated QT as of September 15th, right? And we don't know the impact that that's going to have uh, either. And so to some extent, you're right. He is driving blind a little bit as there is some lag effect. But we also know that a Fed funds rate of 2.5% or even 3% isn't significant enough to have a meaningful impact on the type of inflation we're seeing now. He also knows that as well. And so might there be some dovishness in terms of rate projections in the back end of this year or early next year? Sure. But I think that September and November are all but locked in. Well, there's also the, the unknown as to what, and he'll never say it, obviously, mm -hmm. whether there would be some level of content with bringing inflation down above the target that you don't have to go all the way down initially, try and get it to 2%. Of course, you want to get it to 2%, uh, but maybe they're content with 4 or 5%. And that would perhaps be a big victory at this point. And it doesn't take that much for the market to read something as bullish, given everybody expects him to be hawkish. And that could in, therein be whatever you know, catalyst is sitting out there that could drive buyers back into the market and upset some of the more negative scenarios. We shall see, as it I really, said. Go, it really real depends on... It really depends on your definition of they. If they is us, yes, we'd be thrilled with six or seven percent. If they is the U.S. consumer, you're talking about five and six percent on last year's five and six percent. And so they still wouldn't. That would still be an intolerable. Well, I didn't say six or seven. Consumer. I didn't say six or seven percent. I didn't say five or six percent either. I said four or five percent. Now, obviously, Even I know that. the toll that inflation is taking on every person who lives, obviously. Right. Um, I'm talking specifically about what the market would would read in, because, again, it will never be explicitly said, uh, I don't right. think. Nonetheless, it's good to talk to you as always. Greg, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Scott. Yep, Greg Branch joining us there. Up next, Mr. Wonderful has some latest buys, plus more ways to put your money to work right now. The committee brings you their top dividend picks, even in a rising rate environment. Halftime back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. 
Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back. Uh, We are still red, too, across the board. Kevin O'Leary, I mentioned, is making some moves in his portfolio. Uh, And these are dividend-related plays, Kev, right? Broadcom and energy transfer? Yes, and I I will say one thing about dividends. It's not okay to buy a stock that is providing dividends by paying debt. So you've got to check two other metrics. Is the balance sheet steady? In other words, the company's generating cash to provide the dividends. And secondly, is there a return on assets that makes sense? Because that's the engine that fuels all the mother's milk of dividends. So I always look at ROA, and I also look at the debt, and then the dividend, because dividend is very healthy. If you can get a distribution while you're waiting for markets to stabilize, it's not a bad thing. Now, energy transfer is a play on net gas. My assumption is Putin's still at war come November, December. Those crazy prices of net gas in Europe continue to skyrocket, supports the overall idea that gas is going to stay in the energy infrastructure for a very long period of time. Now, I will say one thing about that name. If Putin gets involved in a hunting accident and the war is over, you will lose money on this. And that's one of the challenges. You've got a geopolitical risk. It'll correct because it's being buoyed by that. And, you know, Broadcom is just a play on a company that is going to be around even after the vaults to the market. It's, it's cloud. I'm looking for semis that have been slaughtered definitely have cloud-based businesses, and they're in there for sure. Plus, you're getting a div yield, and so you can sit in the weeds and wait. No guarantee it doesn't get more pressure on the downside, but it's a new position for me, and I like it from that basis. Div yield with good balance sheets and business models that are sustainable, that's the new theme. So, Shan, I mean, dividend stocks have outperformed the S&P 500 um, broadly. We're not talking in any way, shape, or form here about massive outperformance. Uh, the Vanguard, the VIG, is down 8.5% year-to-date. The S&P is down 13%. So I'm not talking about you know, ridiculous outperformance. And it may be counterintuitive as well to think of, okay, hunting for yield or buying dividend stocks is good when yields are low because you're looking for yield. But now there's alternatives for yield in the fixed income market. And if you think rates are going to go up, should I still be hunting for yield in dividend stocks? Well, there's been a lot of cyclicality in the dividend factor over the course of the last eight years or so. And, and I think one of the things that you're seeing is actually um, an expression of the fact that these uh, the dividend indexes versus the S&P 500, um, they just, there's, there's a lot less tech. There's, there, there's certainly less low profitability or no profitability companies. So um, if you think about uh, you know dividends as a factor, um, our view is actually that we're looking for dividends that can grow over time. Um, and so to your point, I think one of the things that we're seeing is you could see actually a rotation over to dividend stocks away from some high yield. If you look at what happened to high yield corporates last last week, Scott, just, you know, absolutely annihilated um, down two percent, I think, just in the one week. So I think that you could be looking at companies that are paying a sustainable dividend, maybe not the top tier of dividend payers from a, um, an absolute basis, but relative dividend payers probably feel like a bit of a safer haven right now in this environment. The sustainability of that dividend is incredibly important and the ability to grow it. Mm -hmm. Last thing, think about buybacks, you know, the return to shareholders, you know, with the new buyback tax, 
dividends are going to be a much more important part of execution in terms of capital allocation. Yeah, um, and you have NextEra, Quest, and Oracle, as, as people are seeing on the screen. I just want to make sh- uh, sure that we, uh, we say them, too. Uh, Joe, mm-hmm. what I'm talking about in terms of competition w- from bonds with stocks, fewer than 16% of the S&P have dividend yields greater than the yield of the two-year, okay? Fewer than 20 have dividend yields greater than the 10-year speaks directly to the competition now that investors have to grapple with. Yeah, I think that's where you have to be specific to sectors. And that's why when I identify opportunities, uh, both personally I own and in the Joti ETF, Blackstone, AbbVie, and Merck. These are three names, strong dividend yields, reasonable valuation, mid-teens. And let's just take, in the case of Blackstone, this is a company that over the last five years is, to Shannon's point, growing the dividend at a 20% clip. You want to see that dividend growth. Healthcare, that's a sector where I say you have to be concerned about the environment and which sectors can be resilient in that environment. Healthcare is a classic example of that. So these are three instances where I think you could look away from the competition in a two-year, mm-hmm. right, that you're getting from bonds and say, okay, I'll own these companies. You have a broad thought about just dividend yeah, well, stocks in general? And what I, I would caution investors to look at dividend payers, not just based on the yield, because if you look at the yield, it could be a lot of stocks that have a low price, and you don't want those stocks. So looking at something like ticker SDY, which tracks the S&P Dividend Aristocrats Index, screens for companies that have consistently increased dividends over 20 years and also has a screen for capital growth. I don't think dividends have outperformed this year because of the yield. I think they've outperformed because of the sectors they typically fall in, which Mm. is staples and utilities. Yeah. All right. When we come back, oh, you know what? Let's get the headlines now with Bertha Coombs. Sorry, Bertha. Thanks, Scott. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. World leaders are gathering in New York City this week for the United Nations General Assembly. This year's session is taking place in person for the first time in three years. World leaders will discuss the ongoing war in Ukraine and mounting economic and environmental crises. A U.S. Navy sailor accused of setting a fire that destroyed the USS Bonhomme Richard in 2020 and caused around $3 billion in damages is set to go to trial today. Prosecutors allege Ryan Sawyer Mays was disgruntled with the Navy after dropping out of the SEAL training program. The 21-year-old faces charges of arson and willful hazarding of a vessel. Mays denies any role in the fire. A massive 6.8 magnitude earthquake causing major damage across a sparsely populated area of southeastern Taiwan. The natural disaster damaged buildings, derailed trains, and killed one person. It also destroyed the Long Bridge in Hualien County. Scott, back to you. Thank you. That's Bertha Coombs. Still ahead on the half, the ETFs to watch today amid the market volatility. Plus, don't miss Mike Santoli's midday word. That's coming up. And all throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we are celebrating our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here is Sid Wilson, president and CEO of the Hispanic Association on Corporate Responsibility. We know that corporate America has a lot of work to do to make sure that we are fully inclusive of Latinos, particularly uh, on corporate boards, in the C-suites, as well as that pipeline development uh, for making sure that Latinos are included, especially for Latinas, Latinas. 
by themselves um, would be a G20 country if you just took Latina GDP alone. And together, um, all of us, uh, allies, as well as those of us within our community can continue to be that positive force that America needs. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. The ETF industry has crossed a milestone on Friday. For the first time, there's over 3,000 ETFs trading at the same time in the U.S. But is this plethora of funds really helping investors make sense of the volatility? Let's ask Nick Cole, as he's the co-founder of Datatrek Research, and Charlie Ellis, author of the legendary investing book, Winning the Loser's Game, and author of two new books on investing. Nick, 3,000 ETFs. It's less than half the number of mutual funds that exist, but it's quite an achievement. How are investors using all these ETFs? You know, I look at the Spider SPY, the S&P 500 ETF, $350 billion value. It's the biggest ETF in the world, but most of the money still seems to be going into index funds. But there's an increasing number going into active management, single stock ETFs, really big this year. Where are we going with ETFs? Yeah, I mean, the industry continues to innovate, and that's great. I mean, the way people use ETFs started off very simply, just by SPY. That was the only one. And then over the years, as we've added more, investors have used sector ETFs, thematic ETFs, and now active and single-stock ETFs to continue to basically try to make money, figure out where the next leverage point is, and the ETF industry does a great job of providing product for that. Have they gone away from the original idea behind ETFs, which is mostly to tie to index? funds, for example. Now there's all sorts of other innovations going on. Yeah, you know, ETF started off as a very important disruptive innovation, like Amazon selling books. We had one thing. You could buy books on Amazon. SPY, you could go to the SP 500. And then over the years, the technology has continued to improve. Amazon sells everything. ETFs now do everything. So it's moved from being a disruptive innovation to a more of a sustaining innovation. Good point there. Hey, Charlie, you've got two new books out. One of them, a collection of your essays. The other is a history of Vanguard and the legendary Jack Bogle. Now, Jack passed away, what, three years ago, Charlie? But what would he say to investors who are seeing the S&P down 19% this year? What advice would Jack Bogle give to all those nervous investors out there? Steady, 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 long term. You know, it's steady, so steady. clear. Everything down, up and down really can get excited. By the time you get to my age, I'm 85. Uh, you've seen many, 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 many times. The, the real answer is let that go away. Don't pay attention. Focus instead on yourself and on long term of what you're Yeah, and of course, one of his key points was market timing doesn't really work. His intellectual autobiography was called Stay the Course, meaning figure out a plan and stay invested for the long term. Now, we're going to have a lot more on ETF trends coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll also get an update on the state of active management. Active managers are doing better in the first half of 2022 than they have in many years but they're still dramatically underperforming their benchmarks when you go out over several years. All that's coming up on ETF Edge, etfedge.cnbc.com. Halftime Report returns right after this.
Welcome back. Home builder sentiment hitting its lowest level since May 2020. But KeyBank is out with a very positive note today, double upgrading its outlook on that space to overweight. Kevin O'Leary, is now the time to upgrade home builder stocks to overweight with a 20% upside? Really? It's a counter call, and I like calls like this because it takes a lot of guts knowing the Fed is still against you in the headwinds because mortgage rates are definitely going up. Just look at the two-year, look at the 10-year. But bottom line is, in this country, we do not have enough housing. That's a problem. And so even if interest rates get mortgages up past 6%, there's still going to be demand for housing because historically that's not really been a very high rate over a 30-year period for mortgages. So end of, the, end of story, it's, it's, it's gutsy, I got to admit. And there's one other thing to look at. If you look at Home Depot, which I consider such a great index for housing, and that's a stalwart that's been in indexes like the Alps OUSA forever. Mm-hmm. It's been beaten up, but it's got a 16% increase in dividends. It's got an ROA of over a double digit, and it pays a really good div yield. It's in the same boat. If you're going to buy housing, you might not as well really. put an allocation into Home Depot. I mean, not really. If You might choose to fix up your house rather than buy a house if mortgage rates continue to go up, Kev. I mean, I can understand the Home Depot yeah, play. But but it's not but the same the, boat. The, the sentiment against housing really goes to Depot. Depot's getting beaten up, and I think it's a fantastic company because it's got great metrics. We talked about the importance of dividend yields. We talked about that that's a really good way to look at a company's ability to stay on course with their business model. Depot's management has been weathering the storm, and every time you get a downgrade on housing, the stock gets beaten up. And I agree with you. It really doesn't have a lot to do with new houses. But if you are going to make new houses more expensive, you're going to spend a lot more time fixing up housing. So I'd say if you're going to go and buy an index of of home builders, add a little sauce, just a little sprinkle of Home Depot in there, too. You're in the same sector. Yeah. Well, Shannon, you own it. So I I, I guess you agree with Kevin O'Leary. The question is, do you like it more than, as as you would say, uh, adjacent stocks like the builders? Yeah, we definitely prefer housing adjacent stocks, Scott. I think in this uh, period, we're anchored to a very low uh, mortgage rate for many buyers. Um, new buyers are not seeing that inventory. Uh, one thing that could really change for home builders, though, and, and an area that we obviously haven't been in, but if you start to think about the, the rent increases that we're seeing as part of the CPI print, um, and, and buyers start to accept that mortgage rates aren't going to go back down under four, um, at some point you hit that inflection point where Supply has picked up incrementally. We're seeing it already in terms of month of supply. And rents are increasing at a rate that starts to push, you know, potential buyers into that territory. So I I think the housing market is not dead, um, but I do think there's going to be a delay in some of this demand. And I think this call on the home buyers is a little early. What do you think? I want to get, you know, I'm listening to this segment and I'm thinking going second derivative on housing. By the way, the concern that I have would be credit availability more than anything else. Louisiana Pacific, that is a great second derivative trade off of this. It's a name that I've owned in the past, trades it three times right now, gives a dividend yield, company is right uh, near its June lows. I think that's the second derivative play if housing is going to recover. The other call I want to get to real quick, Shan, is this Adobe call, right? You own it, downgraded. You don't like the deal that they just did, do you? Because you think they overpaid and Kevin O'Leary sort of alluded to that a little bit earlier. Yeah, so if you look at the decline, I mean, we're talking about 5% dilution in EPS over the next two years. The decline was probably 
overstated, if you will, if you just look at them growing earnings by 10 to 15 percent over the next couple of years and the multiple it's trading at. My concern is that I think this is an, uh, a messaging from Adobe's management um, that perhaps the innovation within their own company and in their own business lines is stalling out. Um, and I think that that's more of a concern for me on a longer term basis. I uh, still like the stock, but why we're not adding to it after such a decline is that I think there's some a little bit more fodder for competitive concern than we thought there was prior to this announcement. All right. We'll take a quick break. We come back. Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. Plus, we are just over a week away now from CNBC's Delivering Alpha event September 28th. To register, scan the QR code you see right there. Halftime's back right after this. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli from the Stock Exchange today with his midday word. I mean, are we at the point where it's just binary? It's it. He, he either he Powell, the chairman, either soothes, uh, soothes the market or he sinks it. In the short term, probably something like that. The uh, the takeaway is going to be uh, really the predominant thing, right? It's not so much uh, the tone even. It's how the market was set up beforehand. The Fed meetings this year that occurred when the market was already in, you know, a pretty good slide, such as in January uh, and in June, to a lesser degree in March, you did actually see some relief thereafter. Now, clearly those bounces did not last. It didn't mean the coast was clear, but it, it offered an opportunity for the market to maybe get in tune with where it thought the Fed was headed. So, yes, I do think that's where we are. Obviously, the field position of the market is under a lot of close scrutiny in terms of, uh, you know, breaking down below 3,900 on the S&P last week. Does it mean that the, the lows are back in play for, for June? I mean, maybe so for sure. Uh, I, I've been saying for the last month, though, that each kind of sell-off was likely to generate the kind of extremes that you got in June without necessarily getting there uh, to those levels. And that's so far been roughly true, but not not quite all the way there uh, where we are right now at the minus 20 percent level on the S&P. Not all the technicians can even agree on 3,900. I remember what sure. a Friday, I think it was Thursday or Friday, asking Mark Newton of Fundstrat, is it significant at all that we're below it? He said, not really. Krinsky today says it opens the door to go back. Sure. Uh, look, the door is always open is the way I think about it. Um, but you're right that there's not unanimity here. And there's a lot of uh, other folks who are saying, look, you have to give credit to the kind of rally we got off the June lows. There is sometimes this sort of messy, uh, complex bottoming effort that happens over the course of many months. If you look at the seasonal patterns, if everyone's telling you, hey, it's late September into October, you can't like stocks here. They're going to be under pressure because of seasonal factors. We'll see if the same people are saying in late October, you have to buy them because the end of the midterm election year is a no-brainer to the upside. So I think there's a lot of ways uh, that you can sort of twist the the tendencies and the signals, uh, you know, to to different views. All right. Good stuff. I'll see you in a few hours uh, for your last word in overtime, of course, Mike Santoli down at the New York Stock Exchange. Straight ahead, an activist investor, a familiar one, taking a stake in a stock that Kevin O'Leary owns. It's up more than 10% today. We're following that money next on The Half. All right, welcome back. Shares of Wix.com surging today on news that activist investor Starboard Value has taken a 9% stake in the website developer. Kevin O'Leary actually owns a stock that I don't think we've ever discussed on this program before, and it's a well-known and successful activist at that, Jeff Smith and company. 
it's a great outcome. You know, five years ago, activist investors that elbowed their way on the boards were very, very unpopular. That is not the case today. Shareholders welcomed them, and for a very singular reason. They stop idiot management from making stupid mistakes. Imagine, in the case of Adobe, had we had an activist manager there 60 days ago, they would have never blown their brains out the way they did on this acquisition. They bought a dot-com price, a stupid thing they did. Activists would have stopped that. So I like it in a WIC situation. Bring in Jeff, bring in the team, scrutinize every decision, squeeze management's heads. That's fantastic. We need more of this. This is good for stocks. Wow. Okay. Uh, I guess I didn't expect uh, any other <laughs> reaction from you. <laughs> Let me ask you this, though. Okay, great. Your stock's surging. Are you selling? No. I'm, I'm underwater on this name, and I believe in the mandate. This is a service that's going to be around forever. The more we go cloud, the more you need Wix. This is a big index stock. It's big enough market cap, good balance sheet. The, sale, the growth on this name is phenomenal. But I like it when somebody goes and scrutinizes decisions. What's wrong with scrutinizing and considering and discussing and deciding how does this enhance shareholder value? I own the stock because I want to enhance value. That's why I'm in it. Now I have an ally at the board table and Jeff and his team. I love this. I'm very, very happy. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> All right. He sends his regards, I'm sure. Final trades are coming up next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. OT, 4 o'clock Eastern Time. Joe, that's three hours from now. I'm watching. Okay, I hope so. <laughs> Adam Parker's on with me today. Jonathan Krinsky, we talked about his call that below 39, losing it on the S&P opens the door for much lower. We'll test him on that of course, and uh, some other great stuff coming up, too. I hope you'll join me. Louisiana Pacific, we just wanted to highlight it again. You mentioned it. Look at the stock, making a nice little move here. Uh, reiterate to our viewers why you like it so much as this stock uh, gets a little gain on perhaps what you had to say. Because that's the first step in the improvement in the housing trade. It'll be reflected in Louisiana Pacific, and it's ridiculously cheap. Okay. Final trade while you're at it? Charles Schwab, asset manager. Play on hawkishness being transitory. Okay. Shan? Uh, Nextera, uh, many know this as Florida Power and Light. They also have a, a great renewable business and a lot of additional customers coming into that state. And that was one of your dividend picks, too, just to uh, reiterate. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Mr. Wonderful. Staying in the dividend theme, asset manager T. Rowe Price has been increasing dividends for over a decade. Fantastic return on assets. Great cash dividend from a strong balance sheet. Great place to hide in the weeds. Another asset manager. Okay. And finally. Short-term treasuries play on the two-year because I think even if it pops, it's coming back down. Lots of people liking that two-year. All right, guys. Thank you very much. It's good to see everybody right here. Good to see you as well. I'll see you in the OT. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, 
The ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.